God is like an artist who creatively takes media and colors that seem odd and puts them together using techniques that are regarded as radical. In the book of Acts, God took a small band of misfits and transformed them into His church. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, everyday people became teachers, evangelists, and servant leaders. The church grew by the hundreds, people from every profession and socioeconomic background. In spite of their great diversity, their commitment and passion for Jesus radically unified them. They were marked by boldness, generosity, and their love for one another. Although perilous persecution scattered them, the gospel continued to circulate and the church relentlessly grew. What started in Jerusalem spread throughout Judea, across Samaria, and began to consume the world. This is the book of Acts. Oh, man. Oh, it's early. Okay, you got this. You are better than the treadmill. You are better than the treadmill. Don't let it defeat you like last time. Come on. You're the best around, and nothing's ever going to keep you down. You're the best. All right, athlete program, definitely. Speed like a 100. Come on. You got this. Okay, not too fast. Slow down. Easy. Oh, man, isn't this the life? Feeling good. Woke up early this morning. How many days in a row is it now? What does it say? It takes 21 days to make a habit, or is it 21 to break a habit? I don't know. It's something about a habit in 21. I don't know. I tell you what I do know. I know I'm feeling good, taking control, making it happen. I've gotten up early, been eating healthy, just got a new job, equipped with a raise and a fancy new title. Mm, it's fancy too. It feels good to finally provide well for my family. We live in a safe, gated community. We've got nice, reliable cars. Cars. Garage. Oh, did I forget to close the garage again? Man, homeowners association is going to have a fit if they see that thing open again. Yikes. I don't know what it is with those guys. I mean, they get so uptight about the smallest, the tiniest little things. And I understand they want to keep our neighborhood looking nice, but still... You'd think the never-ending monthly fees that mysteriously continue to increase would keep them off my back, at least for a while. And oh, oh, which reminds me, I got to mow my yard this weekend. I wish they made grass that didn't grow. Or maybe, maybe grass didn't grow like a weed. Weeds, weeds. Got to pull the weeds, man. Got to get that taken care of too. Yikes, when am I going to have time for all of this? It's not like I can sleep any less than I already do. Who sleeps less than nine hours a night? You know, my boss isn't going to let up on me with all these new responsibilities that continue to pile on. That gigantic stack of papers on my desk, it doesn't ever seem to go away. I thought computers were supposed to get rid of our need for paper. But it seems like all we do is use more and more and more paper. There's graphs and reports and charts and memos and memos and stop sending me the memos. I got the memo. Man, do you ever feel like you're not going anywhere? It's like this dumb treadmill. I get on it every single day and I run for miles. Okay, I walk for miles, but it's the same thing. I mean, I stay in the same room, staring at these same walls, listening to the same workout jam playlist. It's the story of my life. 
bills, bills, and more bills. Paying my mortgage, man, that's like a never-ending climbing of a mountain. It's, it's so high, I can't even see the top of it. I don't think I'll ever get these cars paid off, much less my mortgage. Oh, got student loans, credit card bills. It seems like I'm paying more interest than anything on all of those. My taxes continue to increase every single year. It amazes me how the government is able to squeeze every little drop out of me that they can and then get more year in and year out. License, registration, renewals, fees. Oh. On top of that, I got insurance premiums, deductibles, co-pays. I, 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 just can't, I can't figure it out. How can someone who makes as much as I do still be behind on everything? There's so much pressure. Man, I'm working harder than ever and really making more than ever, but I don't feel like I'm making much of a dent in all this debt. I'm just spinning my wheels. I thought all these promotions would be a good thing, but with every title change comes a boatload of responsibilities and added on expectations. I've done well so far, but what if I can't keep it up? What if my creativity runs out? What if, what if I can't deliver? What if I let them down? And they call it the rat race, but it feels so much more like a rat maze, and I'm completely and utterly lost. And every turn looks the exact same. I'm running circles. At least my marriage is doing fine. Well, it's doing fine. It's not doing great. It doesn't matter how much work I put into it. We're still dealing with the same exact stuff we've always dealt with. It's like I can't say enough nice things or, I don't know, get enough gifts to get us out of the gigantic rut that we're in. Oh, then there's the kids. Oh, the kids. I keep thinking I'll have more time. Maybe tomorrow or next week or during their summer vacation. But man, they're just getting older. And we are just growing farther apart. Once they turned teenagers, man, it was all over. It didn't matter what I did. I could spend time with them. I could buy them stuff, but nothing seemed to work. Where is the time gone? I feel like I'm letting everyone down. My boss, my other boss, who I call my wife, my kids, my friends, my church, everyone. It's the same thing day in and day out, week after week, month after month, year after year. It's the exact same routine, the never-ending hamster wheel we call life. Giving it all I've got, and yet I continue to go nowhere. It doesn't matter if I run harder or if I go faster. It just, it just seems to make me more exhausted at the end of the day. You ever feel like that? Yeah. Like, like everything you do seems to be meaningless and, and empty and get you nowhere. I can tell you how many times I felt like that. It's like I'm, I'm trapped, utterly trapped. There'll be this one sin in my life that's just owning me. And then all of a sudden, I'll be, I'll be working hard at it. I'll put some things in place, and I feel like I've got it under control. And all of a sudden, it just hits me from behind. And all that work I put into it did nothing. All these things that we do over and over every single day, and yet it seems like we gain no ground. You know, we're not the first culture to live like this, to experience this, to feel this. 2,000 years ago, the Jewish people, they felt a lot like this. They felt very similar to this. Try and put yourself in their shoes for a second. Try and imagine that you're one of the Jewish people living about 2,000 years ago. 
about 1,500 years before that, God had given them the law. He had given them uh, the Ten Commandments along with the rest of the commandments, which added up to about 613 commandments. Now, these commandments, these laws, they regulated their entire life. Every bit of their life, everything uh, that they did, the way they interacted with society, uh, the way that they conducted their business, the way they interacted with a holy God, the way they interacted with one another, every bit of their lives was governed by these commandments. They didn't have like a sacred life and a secular life. They didn't have a religious life and and a normal life. It was all together. It was all one. It was all governed by 613 commandments. I'm not sure if I can count that high. That's a lot. That's a big number, okay? It's almost a million. Okay, 613 commandments. Can you imagine memorizing 613 commandments? That's a lot to memorize. Much less live those out on a daily basis. Crossing your eyes, you don't cross your eyes, you dot your eyes, you cross your T's, try, you know, living it to the fullest extent, trying to be perfect. And then on top of that, there were some guys that I believe, you know, had good intentions at first, trying to protect the law. They really wanted Israel to live up to the righteous requirements of the law, to fulfill it perfectly, these 613 commandments. And so what they did is they added 1,500 other rules and regulations. And the good way to think about this, and we've talked about this before, is to think of it like a pool fence. We've got a pool in the backyard, and we, we've got little kiddos, and we don't want them to drown, at least the nice ones. And, uh, and, so, and so what we do is we put up a fence. Now, now, the thing about a fence is if a kid's walking around the edge of a pool, that's okay. He's not going to drown from rocking around the edge of a pool. But it's dangerous, because he might fall in the pool. And so we build a fence, we put it back about five feet, so there's no way the kid can get anywhere near the pool. Now think of the 613 commandments as that pool. The, the, the Pharisees, they didn't want anyone to transgress these 613 commandments, so they put up 1,500 other rules and regulations that were like a pool fence, so that there's no way that you could transgress those 613 commandments. And they govern like every area of your life. It's spelled out exactly how you're supposed to live on the Sabbath, because you're not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath, but what exactly does that mean, work? How far can I, can I walk before it becomes work? How, how much can I carry before it becomes work? Can I help someone out? Can I help one of my animals out? Like, like, what can I do before it's considered work? How do I live this so I don't break any of these 613 commandments? So that is, if you're good at math, like 2,113 laws, rules, regulations, and commandments. That's a lot. Can you imagine living under that weight? The the weight that would be on your shoulders from all of that stuff that you've got to memorize, all of that stuff that you've got to do? Could you imagine living and then having the religious leaders, the Pharisees and and some of the priests, kind of looking at you and condemning you constantly every time you got out of line in the slightest bit? Every time you, you know, you you just veered from the path just a little bit. Because then, you know, there's clean and unclean, and it's not like Purell. It's, it's religious clean and religiously unclean. If you were religiously clean, you could interact in society fully. You could participate in the worship of God. But if you were religiously unclean, you couldn't. Because anything that was unclean, that touched something clean, everything became unclean. So if I'm clean, you know, I've been fulfilling the law. I've been, you know, doing these 613 commandments, the 1,500 other rules and regulations. I'm clean. I'm good to go. And then I accidentally touch a pig. Then I'm unclean. So Carrie Ann and Brenna, they are unclean because they've got a pig. 
Now, now, now here's the thing, right? How, that's, that's a big deal. And then I become unclean and I shake hands with you and then you become unclean. And it's like, sorry, dude, I, I, I forgot, right? And now you've got to go through a ritual cl- cleansing process that takes about seven days It's crazy. Could you imagine what that was like to live under that day in, day out, week after week, month after month, year after year, your entire life? There were seven major feasts that God had commanded the Israelites to celebrate. Now, the Israelites had spread out. Uh, They weren't just living in Jerusalem. There were were people living, you know, in a lot of different places. And in fact, at that time, at the time of Jesus, more Jews were living outside of Israel than were living inside Israel. So there are people all over the Roman Empire. And God had commanded, hey, you need to celebrate these feasts together, especially three of them. There are three feasts each year that you're commanded to come back to Jerusalem to celebrate together as a nation, as a family. Okay, You live, you know, 50, 60, 70, 100, 200 miles away. That's a big deal. They didn't have cars back then. Uh, You know, donkeys didn't go 100 miles an hour. Uh, You know, it was was, was a big deal to to make this trek. And and there was one feast that everyone came back for. This was the big deal, Passover. In fact, the the, uh, historian Josephus, who lived back in the day, he talked about how uh, on on one Passover, there were 270,000 lambs that were purchased and sacrificed for the people's sins. They had sin offerings and burnt offerings. They had vows that they had to complete. And all of this stuff was supposed to be done at the temple. So anytime you're sacrificing, anytime you're fulfilling your vows, you've got to go back to the temple, which I mean, that's, a, that's a long journey for those that were living outside of Jerusalem and especially those that were living outside of Israel. That was a, a big deal. They had new moon feast. They lived on a lunar calendar, which we don't. I lived out by a lunar calendar, and the first day of every month, they had a new moon feast. Uh, the first day of every week was a Sabbath, where you're supposed to rest. So you've got once a week Sabbath, once a month new moon feast. You've got these seven feasts during the year. Three of them you're supposed to go back to Jerusalem, and one of them you're definitely going back to Jerusalem for the Passover. Can, can, you, can you begin to feel the weight of what they're living under? And think about this. And all that they did, all these religious acts that they did, they never gained any ground. Because any time that they fell, any time that they sinned, any time they got out of line, they were in the red. And and, and then, you know, if they would, you know, atone for their sins and they would have, you know, the sacrifice. And then there was the atonement for the whole people on the day of atonement on Yom Kippur. And so so on that day, you'd get back to like ground zero. But you never got in the green. You couldn't build up any religious equity which is what I found in marriage. I went into marriage thinking that I could build some, some relational equity, that I could do a bunch of awesome stuff, I could, I could buy a couple cool things, so then if I accidentally messed up one time, which one time I did, um, one time that happened, uh, then, then I would still be in the green, right? If I do a bunch of good stuff and then I, then I, then I mess up, I'm still good, I'm still in the green, I'm not in the red yet. That's, that's not the way it works. FYI, all you single people don't work like that. Because it's like I was always at ground zero. You do good things, that's awesome, it was appreciated, but, but then you do something stupid and, you know, down there. Okay, so this is the way it was in that Jewish religious society. Ground zero was the best that you could do, and then you're living your life in the red so often, no matter how many things that you did, no matter how many vows you fulfilled, no matter how many sacrifices you made, no matter how many feasts you attended, no matter how many pilgrimages you made, the best you could do was this. I mean, it's like they were living on a treadmill, a religious treadmill, going nowhere. 
working really hard, running really fast, but going absolutely nowhere. This is what they lived under. And they had a number of motivations. Some people wanted to please God. Some people wanted to earn their righteousness. Some people wanted to force God into acting. If everyone would live the law, then God would have to come back and save them from the oppression under the Roman Empire. But they just kept going nowhere. And this is the cultural context that we find ourselves in in the book of Acts. I don't know if you're aware of this, but Jesus was Jewish. He didn't have blonde hair. He didn't have blue eyes. He was Jewish. He was Semitic. Um, he was Middle Eastern. And so he was, he was born into that context, into that cultural context. And when he sent his disciples out, uh, he sent them out in that cultural context. Uh, the, the first Christians, the, the first church was, was composed of Jewish people. And so when they were sharing the good news, they were sharing it to these people who were under this weight, carrying this weight, this burden, running on the treadmill, never going anywhere and the good news was so countercultural. It was such good news that the church began to grow by leaps and bounds. And they were characterized by this uncommon love and uncommon uh, joy, uncommon boldness, uncommon generosity. It was amazing the way that the church lived. And as it began to grow, it began to challenge those that were in power. You see, there were the Pharisees who had a lot of re religious respect. Then there were uh, the Sadducees who had a lot of wealth. And there were the priests that had control of the religious system. And what happened when people began converting to Christianity, it began to threaten their power. So they didn't like that. They, they enjoyed the power that they had. So they began to persecute the church to try and stop this movement of Christianity. And they were, it, I mean, it was crazy the things that happened. They were beating people. They were imprisoning people. They were killing some people. This was a big deal. And so what happened when persecution struck greatly the gospel began to spread. And it, and it went to the ends of Judea. It went uh, over into Samaria, which was like their, their cousins from a long time ago. Uh, they, you know, they were part of the people of God, but kind of had lost their way. And then it began to spread into the Gentile regions. When I use that word Gentile, that's confusing to you. In Bible terminology, there are two kinds of people. There were Jewish people and there were non-Jewish people. And the non-Jewish people were called Gentiles. So that's the way that it is. You've got Jewish people and Gentiles, okay? Most of us are Gentiles, just so you know. Um, so it began to spread to the Gentile regions, which was kind of cool. And there was this one church uh, in this city called Antioch. And this was far north of Jerusalem. And some crazy stuff started happening in Antioch. So much so that the apostles in Jerusalem heard about it. And they thought, well, we've got to see what's going on up here. We've got to see if this is of God or if this is not of, a, of God. So we're going to get our main man, Barnabas. Barnabas means son of encouragement. That's what his name means. And this guy was legit. The guy that they trusted sent up there. I don't know about, about you, but I'd love to have a little Barnabas in my pocket that I could just take out when I need some encouragement. Be like, okay, Barnabas, you're up, man. Come on, right here. And then, okay, I'm good. Thanks. Uh, and, and so, anyway, they sent Barnabas up. That was, that was free, so you didn't have to pay for that. Uh, they sent Barnabas up to Antioch. And Barnabas sees what's going on in Antioch, and he's stoked about it. This is awesome. Uh, God is mightily in their midst. So he says, hey, I need to get a Paul of Tarsus in my pocket, and I need him to help, help uh, you know, lead this church. So he goes to Tarsus. Now, if you remember Paul, he was also called Saul. Saul was his Jewish name. Paul was his Gentile name. Uh, Saul was persecuting the church for a while. And then Jesus gave him the gift of blindness. 
and he got converted uh, to uh, Christianity, and then he became a powerhouse for Christianity. He was preaching, and no one could contend with the way that he was preaching. It was amazing. He knew the law and the prophets backwards and forwards. He knew the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. He knew it uh, by heart, and, and he was passionate And he was a great debater of that age. And so it was very difficult for people to contend with him. And so they began to persecute Paul. They tried to kill Paul. And so the disciples sent him to Tarsus and said, hey, go live with your family for a little bit and and we'll see what happens. Barnabas goes up to Antioch, says, hey, we need a guy like Paul. So he goes to Tarsus, gets Paul, and they began to pastor this church uh, with, with some other elders in Antioch for a while. And things are going great. Until the Holy Spirit says, hey, Elders, I want you to set aside Paul and Barnabas to go do the work which I have for them. And if I were one of the elders at that time, I might have raised my hand and said, hey, could you send someone that's less important than these two? Because you've got, you know, Barnabas, the son of encouragement, and we need that in our pocket every once in a while. And then, then Paul, he's legit. I mean, the stuff that he knows, I mean, he had a direct encounter with Jesus. Can you believe it? But that's not what they did. They were so for the spreading of the gospel, they said, hey, Paul and Barnabas, you go. Go where the Spirit is leading you. And so he sent them, Paul and Barnabas, and took along with them a guy named John Mark, and they uh, went to Cyprus, the island of Cyprus. And they were preaching the gospel, and some good stuff was happening. And then there was a guy named Bar-Jesus, not to be confused with with just Jesus. Um, Bar-Jesus was a false prophet, and he was trying to go against the gospel because it was threatening the power that he had. And so Paul uh, passed on to him the gift of blindness. And, and I, I mean, really, I, mean, I say it's a gift and it's kind of funny, but I really believe it's a gift. I mean, w- what did it do to Paul? It drew him near to Jesus. Man, if, if there's anything that can draw you near to Jesus, that's a gift. And so Paul gives him some blindness. Hopefully that drew him near to Jesus. We don't know. We don't know the rest of his story. Um, not even Paul Harvey knows the rest of his story, but still. And so after that, they leave Cyprus. They go north. They, they head north and then... John Mark says, hey, I've I've had enough of this. I'm going to head back to Jerusalem. And Paul and Barnabas continue to head north, and they hit Antioch. Now, that should jump in your mind, Antioch. You'd think, wait, Antioch. I just heard about Antioch, right? Right before I fell asleep, Antioch. They were in Antioch. Okay, Antioch, there were a number of towns, a number of cities called Antioch. Because back in the day, there was a ruler named Antiochus Epiphanes. He was brutal. He was awful. Uh, In fact, that was around the time of the Maccabees, uh, where he... uh, where he slaughtered a pig on the Jewish altar. Like it, was, it was awful in the temple. It was awful. But then he had a son who was a, it was a pretty good ruler. And he, out of respect for his father, named a bunch of different cities Antioch after Antiochus Epiphany. So if you hear Antioch, it could be a number of different cities. So this is the Antioch that was in the area of Galatia, right? Modern day Turkey. And this is where we are in the book of Acts. If you would like grab your Bible. If you don't have one, you can snatch up one of the beautiful blues. We're going to be in Acts chapter 13. It's page 599, page 599. If in your Bible, I don't know what page it is. And if you don't know where that is, it's right after page 598. Acts chapter 13, we're going to be in verse 14. It says, on the Sabbath day, now the Sabbath, remember that was the first day of the week where they weren't supposed to do any work. On the Sabbath day, they, this is Paul and Barnabas, went to the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, which was normal, that, that happened, you know, in all the synagogues, you would, that's what you would do. It's kind of like a Jewish church where you would, you would hear from the law, which was the first five books of the, the Old Testament, and then you would hear from the prophets. They would do those readings, they would say some prayers, 
And it says, the rulers, after the reading of the Law and the Prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, to Paul and Barnabas, saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Now, I don't know if you know what low-hanging fruit is, but if you're trying to get fruit from an apple tree, what's the easiest apples to get? The, the ones on the, on the low branches, right? That's low-hanging fruit. It's easy to get. Now, when you're trying to share the gospel, sometimes it's really, really difficult. Sometimes it's easy. You'll be sitting on a plane next to someone and they got their headphones in, they're watching a movie. Tough to share the gospel with someone like that. Now, pretend you're on a plane sitting next to a guy and he says, hey, um, man, do you have any good news to share with me? And you're like, no. No, but that, that's low-hanging fruit. It's like, hey, share with me some good news. And Paul says, okay, me. I got, I got some. I got some right here. He raises his hand. He actually does raise his hand. He motions with his hand and he says, men of Israel and you who fear God. In the Gentile nations, uh, the synagogues that existed, there would be a lot of Jewish people that would be a part of it. And then also some Gentile people, Gentiles that, that feared God and wanted to learn more about what was going on. And so he addresses the crowd, people of Israel and those who fear God, And then he gives a brief little history about Israel, about what God has done through the people of Israel. And he gets to the point where Israel asked for a king. Verse 21, it says, Then they, the nation of Israel, asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he, God, raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all of my will. Paul refers to David. David in the history of Israel was, was one of the guys that everyone looked to. David was, was amazing, okay? He was a warrior. He was a man's man. He was also a poet. He was also a musician. He wrote a lot of the Psalms that we have. David was a real Renaissance man. And he was a guy, a, a figurehead in Israel's history that they look back to. And Paul refers to David and he says, hey, he was a man after God's own heart. And it says, God's, of, this, of this man's offspring, of David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Now, there was a prophecy in the Old Testament that, that God had promised David that, hey, from your offspring, from your descendants, I'm going to raise up the Messiah. And there was all kind of prophecies about this Messiah. He was the guy that all of Israel had been looking for, had been anticipating, had been waiting for, had been praying for, had been longing for, right? They were longing for the return. They were longing for uh, God to send the Messiah and for him to redeem and restore all things, to take down the Roman Empire in their, their oppression, their life of oppression, and form this great kingdom. They were longing for this. They were anticipating for this. They were waiting for this. And Paul says, hey, I got good news and I got better news. The good news is the Messiah has come. His name is Jesus. He was a sin of David, just like it was prophesied. He says, before his coming, before Jesus' coming, John, uh, the great prophet John the Baptist, who was baptizing people, says John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finished his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the one that you've been anticipating. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am an unworthy to untie. 
Can you imagine how that statement must have gone over? The great prophet John was the one declaring the way, making the way uh, straight for the Messiah. And he said, the Messiah is so great. He's so amazing. I'm not even, unwor- I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. That's how great he is. And Paul's saying, this guy has come. And then Paul does something really, really brilliant. He says, brothers and sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God to us has been sent the message of the salvation. He, he, he forms everyone up and says, hey, we're all in this together, right? All, all, all of us together, the, the people of Israel, uh, you who fear God, us, this message has been sent to us. And then he contrasts it with some theys. He says, for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, Jesus, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, they fulfilled them by condemning him, by condemning Jesus. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree, laid him in a tomb. They didn't, they didn't recognize that the Messiah had actually come. He had come, and he was killed, and he was buried. But I got good news for you. But God raised him from the dead. He was killed, and the Messiah that we've been hoping for, that we've been longing for, that we've been waiting, that we've been anticipating, he was killed. But don't worry, God raised him from the dead. Not only was John unworthy to untie his sandals, but this guy was so amazing that God raised him from the dead. This is great news. And he says, just in case you don't believe me, it says, uh, for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. He said, you can go to Jerusalem and you can find people that actually saw this, that actually experienced this, him being raised from the dead, the Messiah, the one who was promised to come. This is the good news that I have for you. And then he continues to talk about him for a little bit and he gives him the even better news. In verse 38, he says, let it be known to you therefore, brothers, that through this man, through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed from, the law of Moses, the weight that you've been under, the 613 commandments, the 1,500 other rules and regulations that you have been trying to live day in, day out, week after week, month after month, year after year, to try and earn favor or try to to earn righteousness. He says, you've been set free. You've been set free from this. He echoes this in the book of Romans. If you'd like to turn there, it's page 613, Romans chapter 8. Paul is writing to the church of Rome, and he says this in verse 1. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. They had lived their entire life under condemnation, day in and day out. Everything that they failed on, every time they got just the slightest bit out of line, they were condemned. And he says, the good news is there is no more condemnation if you're in Christ. He says, uh, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sinning his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. And then he gets to the, the, the best part. He says, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in 
us. That's what they've been trying to do their entire lives, to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law, to live it out to a T, to, to do everything right, to be made righteous. And he says, Paul says, Jesus fulfilled it, so now it can be fulfilled in us. Let go of all the things that you're striving after. Quit trying to live up to the righteous requirements of the law. Quit living under this burden. Quit running on that treadmill. Jesus has taken care of it, and now the righteous requirements of the law are fulfilled in us who are in Christ. Peter echoes this in 1 Peter. He says, you were, you were ransomed. You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. The way that, that, that Israel has been living for the last 1,500 years under the weight of this, you were ransomed from this. You, you don't have to live in it anymore. He says, and not, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. Now, I, I love what Peter does here. He says, I mean, if there is anything in our world that isn't perishable, it's like silver and gold, right? I mean, these are the things that we think will last for a long time. And Peter says, hey, you were ransomed, but it wasn't with, with, with small things. It wasn't with perishable things like silver and gold. Psh, not like that. It was with the precious blood of Christ, who was like a lamb without spot or blemish. The precious blood of Jesus has set you free. God says, get off the treadmill. Quit trying to, to earn things. Quit trying to, to earn your righteousness. And, and I know we live 2,000 years later and we live in view of the cross. But I think so often we don't really live in view of the cross. I mean, we know all the stuff. But so often I think the way that we actually live is, is, is we, like this. I, I, it's like, okay, Jesus made a great big down payment. Right, right here on the cross. It was a good down payment. And now what I need to do is I need to keep making payments to continue in right relationship with God. I mean, that's the way that I live so often. I mean, I've got I've to do my Bible studies. I've got to read the Bible. I've got to memorize the Bible. I've got to pray. I've got to go to church. Uh, I've got to serve in some missional you know, community, serve on some team. I've got, I've got to do all of this stuff to continue in right relationship with God. And I know that it's this way because when I don't, I feel guilty. And I feel like I have to ask for forgiveness and I feel like I have to now do a bunch of stuff to earn back that right standing with God. I feel like I've come into the red and now I need to do a bunch of stuff, you know, read a bunch, pray a bunch to get back there. But God says, stop. Stop it. You cannot earn right standing with me. Why? Because you already have it. Nothing you can do will earn right standing with God because in Christ you already have it. You can't earn what you already have, what you've already been given as a gift. And he says, quit trying to earn favor with me. You can't do it. You can't pray enough. You can't read enough. You can't come to church enough to earn favor with me because you already have it. While you were still a sinner, while you were still an enemy, while you were rebelling against me, I loved you so much that I gave my son to die for you. You already have my favor. I already loved you. I love you. You can't earn it because it's already yours. Man, I love what Jesus says when he says, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden. All of you have been running on this treadmill, working really hard, running really fast, just sweating to death and getting nowhere, completely exhausted, overrun, tired. 
Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 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 Don't you want that? Don't you want rest? Don't you want peace? Jesus says, get off the treadmill and come experience my rest. I love so many things about Jesus. I love, I love that I don't have to earn righteousness because I can't. I know I can't. I know my life. I know my sin. There's no way I can do it. I love that Jesus loved me so much that, that, that he did it for me on my behalf, that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in me because of what he did. I love that. And I love that, that, that I don't have to earn his favor because I know I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I can't. It's impossible. But I love even more, I love even more that he says, I'm now going to give meaning to the things that you were doing before. You see, instead of having to earn my favor, earn your righteousness through acts of religion, I'm now going to free you to participate in relationship. Rather than earning through religion, now you're free to participate in relationship with the God of the universe. What is prayer? It's time with God. What is reading your Bible? It's learning the heart of God. What is going to church? It's experiencing together as the community of God, the presence of God, and worshiping and praising his name. It's all about relationship, not about religion. He freed us from the religion so that now we are free to participate, to pray, to spend time, to memorize, to meditate, to love, to serve, to reach out. We're free to do all these things that actually draw us near to God as he draws near to us. It's amazing. And I love that he took it one step further. Not just, not, not, not to just free me to participate in relationship with him. But he said, all those other mundane tasks that you've been doing your entire life, I'm going to give them meaning. I don't know about you. But I have this thing inside me where I just want to live an epic life. And that's, that's it. That's all. Just, just an epic life, okay? But, but seriously, I, do, I want my life to have meaning. I want it to have purpose. I want it to have great significance. And that's why I watch superhero movies. <laughs> I watched Spider-Man just the other night, okay? Spider-Man. And, and it's exciting, and he's slinging his web, and he's saving the day. And it's all about this guy living this amazing, epic, fulfilling, awesome life. And I walk out of there thinking, God, I want to do that. I want to do that. I want to, you know, you know, the webs and the buildings and the saving and the significance and the applause and everything. I want that. That's what I want to be. That's what I want to do. I have this, this, this yearning inside me to live an epic life. And Jesus says, get off the treadmill and live an epic life. I'm inviting you to be a part of the most epic story ever told. That the God of the universe came down to earth because of his great love for humanity. He died for us, paid the penalty for our sin. He freed us from all this stuff, freed us to live in relationship. And now you can be a part of sharing that news with the world, of getting my, my kingdom out to the world. Each and every one of you are invited in to be a part of the most epic story ever told. I get to do that. 
And now every little mundane thing I did before now has great significance, meaning, and purpose. Man, doing laundry for my family. If I'm not doing it for myself, I'm doing it with self-sacrificial motives. It's like a drop that the ripples echo into eternity. If I'm doing it out of love, it's spreading the love of Jesus. I mean, just laundry or, or the dishes, driving in my car. I've got one of those mosaic stickers. Uh, and, and then if I, if I drive in a loving way and I let people in, you know, when they shouldn't be let in, or if I don't honk at people, you know, when it's, you know, the light just turned green like five seconds ago, and they see my sticker, if they know what that is, if they can decipher that that's actually a crown and a dove, and if I just spoiled it for you guys, if you're trying to figure it out and you want to do it on your own, I'm so sorry. But that's what it is. It's a crown of thorns and a dove. And, and, and they, they see you driving in such a way that reflects the love of Jesus. It, it's a small drop that begins to ripple into eternity. It, it is. They might not be able to, to, to equate it with the love of Jesus at the moment, but someday, someday, some way, it's, it's just a drop that echoes into eternity. When, I, when I'm going to work and I'm at the break room and I'm hanging around the water cooler, what was meaningless before now becomes an opportunity to share the love of Jesus, to affect someone's eternity forever. For them to be invited into relationship with Jesus. The way that I talk, not bad about people. The way that I encourage them, challenge them, inspire them. Now, now, now the lunch table becomes a great opportunity to live this epic life that God promises, that he invited us into. Our lives now have such great opportunity for meaning, for significance, for value, for purpose. This is how amazing our God is. He loves us so much. That it said, hey, I'm going to free you from all this stuff. I'm going to invite you into relationship and I'm going to give you the opportunity to live the epic life that you were created to live. God is amazing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Oh, Heavenly Father. Thank you so much for who you are, for your great love, your great mercy. God, thank you for guiding us and directing us. Thank you for saving us. Thank you so much that you have freed us from all those things that we could not free ourselves from. Thank you for fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law so we wouldn't have to. Thank you so much, Jesus, for dying so that I might have life. Thank you for the rest that you offer, the peace that you offer. I pray that you would help us to let go of trying to run on the treadmill of religion, trying to earn, trying to gain. Help us to let go. Help us to step off of the treadmill and run out in the wild open with you, experiencing relationship with you, sharing your love with the world, being your hands and your feet, being a part of the epic, epic story that you have written for us. Thank you so much. Help us, God. We need you. We beg for your help, for your wisdom, for your guidance, for your power. Be mightily in our midst. And we pray all these things in the amazing, powerful name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.